Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everyone, to New Books and Critical Theory, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, we're going to be discussing Migrants in the Profane, Critical Theory and the Question of Secularization by Peter E. Gordon. He's the Amabel B. James Professor of History and Faculty Affiliate in the Department of Germanic Languages and Literatures and in the Department of Philosophy at Harvard University. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Gordon. Hi, it's wonderful to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Now, your book was published earlier this year, uh, earlier actually, um, last year by uh, Yale University Press. For introductory purposes, please elaborate on the complicated relationship between the myriad critical theorists in the Frankfurt School and Judaism, especially given, for example, the fact that uh, Theodore Adorno uh, despite his Jewish paternity and national socialist racial classification as Jewish, was a Catholic turned Protestant who disavowed a denomination. Also, if possible, please explain what prompted Jewish socialists in 19th and early 20th century Europe to wed Marxism with modernities. Okay, well, thank you for asking that question. Now, in, in, in answering it, I should probably begin with an explanation as to the origins of the book. Uh, because this will help shed some light on the peculiar framing um, uh, and, and, and the, the con- strange constellation of questions that I try to answer. So in 2016, I was invited to deliver the Franz Rosenzweig Lectures in Modern Jewish Thought, which is a series sponsored by the Program in Judaic Studies at Yale. Uh, that was an honor for me, um, not least because my very first book was a philosophical and historical study of the thought of Franz Rosenzweig himself, who was an existential theologian and whose major philosophical work, The Star of Redemption, has exercised a curious influence on thinkers such as Walter Benjamin or much later Emmanuel Levinas. Uh, Rosenzweig also founded uh, the, the co-founded the Jüdisches Lehrhaus in Frankfurt, which was an institute for Jewish education that also drew interest from scholars such as Leo Lilienthal, the Frankfurt School sociologist. Now, I should confess that over the years, my interests in any discreetly defined tradition of Jewish philosophy has waned, but I still harbor an academic fascination for the troubled history of German Jewish intellectuals. Um, So when I was invited to deliver the lectures at Yale, I wanted to find a way to speak to the concerns of the program while also remaining true to my own current interests in Frankfurt School critical theory. And since I'm in the midst of a much larger project on secularization, these lectures were the result. So they represent something of a compromise, you could say, between the concerns of Jewish history and my own major interest in discourses of critical theory. So that's the background. Now, turning turning to your particular question, 
I think it's especially important that we don't exaggerate when speaking of the identification of the first generation of critical theorists with any traditions of Judaism. Max Horkheimer, for example, grew up in a religiously observant family, but had abandoned that observance by the time he served in the First World War, though he was shaken by the anti-Semitism he encountered among other short soldiers. And he, in a way, made a return back to Judaism at the end of his life, though that, even that's maybe overstating it. Walter Benjamin's childhood family sustained a sense of its Jewish identity, but observance wasn't pronounced. The case of Theodore Adorno, as you note, and as I explain in the book, is perhaps the most complicated of all. His father was, Oscar, was of Jewish descent, but actually separated himself officially from the Jewish community in Frankfurt, not too long after Teddy was born. And that's a fact that was confirmed to me by Stefan Müller-Dum, who's the author of a superb biography of Adorno. Everybody should read that. Adorno's mother was Catholic, and it mattered to her to have Teddy baptized as one. He later shifted to Protestantism, but eventually saw himself as a man without religious identity. Now, despite this fact, the milieu in which he was raised was strongly Jewish. His intimate friendships with thinkers such as Siegfried Krakauer, Max Horkheimer, and much later Gershom Scholem, along with his own marriage to Gretel Karplus, really do confirm our sense that his primary milieu, his primary context for socialization was that distinctively assimilated German-Jewish Bildungsbürgertum or educated middle class that uh, we all find so uh, fascinating when we're studying modern German history and uh, particularly German intellectual history. So in that respect, all three of the thinkers discussed in my book do exemplify the broader phenomenon that's well known to historians of the European left intelligentsia. There's an enduring sociological pattern in which assimilating Jews in Europe who had largely abandoned the faith of their ancestors turned with real passion to movements of political emancipation and radical politics. It's a pattern we find in, for example, Heinrich Heine and in Karl Marx, or in the succeeding generation in the life of Rosa Luxemburg and Leon Trotsky. Among Central European Jewish intellectuals, it's a pattern that we find in the biographies of Georg Lukács, and also, to come to the point, in most members of the Institute for Social Research, better known as the Frankfurt School. But I want to say we really shouldn't exaggerate, and we should be very careful when speaking about this. There's no eternal bond here. There's only a sociological and historical pattern of attachment that was encouraged by the ideals of the Enlightenment and the promise of emancipation that it inspired for a minority that had experienced violent persecution and exclusion. Those ideals of the Enlightenment helped to explain a distinctively Jewish attachment to radical politics and to cultural movements associated with uh, political radicalism, including movements of aesthetic modernism. Now, to some degree, that kind of sociological conditioning has been sustained despite the paradox that the Jewish minority has largely succeeded, especially in the United States, in overcoming the social barriers to its full participation in uh, Western democracies. 
those barriers, of course, largely dissolved by the end of the 1950s and 60s in the States. But the attachment, you might say, seems evident even in the fact of uh, Senator Sanders from Vermont, who nearly succeeded in becoming the Democratic candidate for president in the most recent U.S. election. Still, those sociological and historical conditions have faded, and so too has the Jewish attachment to radical or socialist politics. Now, why am I emphasizing that point? I, I want to stress it so that there's no misunderstanding and so that we take care to dismiss all of the toxic and anti-Semitic rumors of a so-called Frankfurt School conspiracy that circulate freely in right-wing circles, and especially, of course, on the internet. The myth of that kind of conspiracy has been documented with care and criticized uh, quite brilliantly by the intellectual historian Martin Jay in an essay he wrote several years ago for Salma Gundi with the poignant title, Dialectic of Counter-Enlightenment. In the end, my book is not primarily concerned with that historical question or with questions of identity. I use them only as a convenient point of narrative access into the story that really interests me. And that's this. How did the first generation theorists of the Frankfurt School, Benjamin, Horkheimer, and Adorno, take up the theme of secularization into their philosophical writing? And what is the complex status of secularization as an idea or as a conceptual gesture in their work? Adorno, for instance, spoke of a migration into the profane that all concepts must undergo. And given the experience of Jewish persecution, I find that image extraordinarily interesting. So my book in the end interlaces philosophical questions about secularization as a concept with some political comments, chiefly in the conclusion about migration and its challenge for secularization today. That's about as uh, comprehensive as I can be in offering a, a general introduction to the themes of the book. And I hope I've answered the question too. Thank you. In Wilhelm Medjimin's 1916 to 1925 Origin of the Morning Play and his uh, 1940 Theses on the Philosophy of History, how did the ideas of messianic time and the quote-unquote real state of ex exception break with 19th century uh, mechanistic historicism, the proximate ideas of Carl Schmitt, and even the automated Mark, so-called Marxian theory of history as catastrophe? And if possible, please address how such historicism partially resulted from Enlightenment attempts to understand enchanted Orientalist Eastern touchstones concealed in disenchanted Western machines. I'm thinking about the uh, 1770 Turk purported chess machine. Great question. Well, so let me begin by saying Benjamin, as we all know, failed to secure acceptance for his habilitation, uh, which was on the topic of the origins of the morning play, the, the baroque uh, genre uh, of, uh, of, of drama, the so-called Trauerspiel. But it's a stunning work that's re received a great deal of, of interesting commentary. Now, among the controversies that the book has sparked is the question of Benjamin's intellectual debt to Carl Schmitt, the political and legal theorist who went on to become an ardent champion of the Third Reich and whose work is stained by anti-Semitism. Nonetheless, the fact of that debt is obvious. Uh, Benjamin cites uh, Schmidt's work on political theology, 
and even sent Schmidt a copy of the book. But what it says about Benjamin's own thinking about the nexus between politics and theology remains a matter of heated debate. Now, on one reading, Benjamin's book is a critical rejoinder to Schmidt. While Schmidt believed that no political system can dispense with an irrational moment of sovereign decision, a moment that intrudes from outside the system like a miracle, Benjamin's study of Baroque tragedy suggests that Often, the sovereign is a melancholic. Uh, Think here of uh, uh, the anticipations of Hamlet. Uh, A a melancholic who's simply paralyzed in a state of indecision. So the Schmidtian notion of a radical decision that intrudes upon the lifeless system of laws uh, uh, turns out to be mistaken. And this is Benjamin's rejoinder. It deals a serious blow to Schmidt's idea that all sovereigns are endowed with a capacity for uh, radical uh, grounding decision, which is analogous uh, to the decision uh, and the miracle of a divine. So it seems obvious that Benjamin continued to think about Schmidt's theories, and Schmidt reappears as an unnamed interlocutor, even in Benjamin's very late essay on the concept of history. That's one of the very last things Benjamin ever wrote, even while he was attempting to escape from the fascism that was engulfing Europe. In his so-called theses, which you mentioned in your question, Benjamin refers to the state of emergency, a Schmidtian concept. But unlike Schmidt, Benjamin brings this theme into a Marxian framework and argues that the state of emergency is not the exception, which is what Schmidt claimed, but the norm of modern life. So Benjamin then affirms that all of history is a continuum, a continuum of catastrophe, and that that's the norm. But one might argue that his enduring debt to Schmidt remains visible nonetheless, when he argues that revolution must intrude upon the ruinous continuum of history like a messiah who enters into history from the outside. So to come to the arguments in my book, in my book I raise strong doubts as to whether this model of revolution is really viable. Benjamin presents himself as an historical materialist in the theses, but any materialist this theory of history needs to explain how the energies that burst out in revolution have emerged from the imminent dialectical workings of history itself. Benjamin violates this principle because he appeals to an extra historical event. Okay, now to come to the intriguing and curious and enchanting image of the chess playing Turk. Benjamin dramatized his doctrine with the chess playing Turk, drawing upon his knowledge of von Kempelen's famous automaton, or so-called automaton, that made its debut in the 18th century at the Viennese court. The history of that automaton cast Benjamin's doctrine in an interesting light. So let let me make a short digression here on this. Ingenious mechanical contraptions like that were a fashion in Europe at the time. They testified to human technical ingenuity 
even while they drew upon and seemed to illustrate deist understandings of God as a watchmaker, someone who created mechanisms. Now, the crucial thing to remember here is that they were supposed to be mere mechanisms that illustrated merely human skill. Von Kempelen himself, we know, was an engineer. The chess-playing Turk, however, is an exception to this because it was a fake. The automaton was not, in fact, automatic. Its movements were controlled by a human being who was hidden beneath the chessboard. The the so-called automatism, in other words, was governed by a human being. So if we interpret this, we could say it was the secular secret of a secular device. There's nothing about that mechanism that implies the concealed energies of religion. Benjamin's interpretation runs against these secular principles and what we know about the, the, uh, the chess playing mechanism. He suggests, Benjamin suggests, that historical materialism is analogous to the chess playing Turk and that historical materialism would not have its explanatory power if it couldn't draw strength from the concealed powers of a theological concept, namely the concept of messianic rupture, the concept of discontinuous time. So Benjamin discerns in historical materialism an encrypted or a concealed theology. Um, So to come to your last question, I think it's worth meditating on the significance of the Orientalist imagery here. Chess is a game that apparently originated in India, and it carries strong associations with the East. Orientalist figures hailing from Turkey or Persia were commonplace in 18th century opera and in literature. Think of Mozart's abduction from the Seraglio or Montesquieu's Persian letters. Uh, and von Kempelen was uh, capitalizing on that kind of Orientalism with his image of the, of the Turkish chess player with his turban. Benjamin compresses those kinds of Orientalist motifs into his image of an historical materialism that can't be effective if it is wholly enlightened, that is, if it has uh, uh, suffered complete disenchantment. The Orient becomes a figure of a still enchanted world, one that retains its transformative power, even if it must pretend to be purely secularized. A similar idea, by the way, appears in Montesquieu's Persian letters, whose two protagonists travel from Persia to Paris, and they become secularized as they go. For Benjamin, such a narrative of complete secularization is a danger because it would rob historical materialism of its hidden theological animus. Now, this uh, question is from the his figurative angel's perspective. If the perennial hope for revolution in Benjamin's 1940 concept of history required concealed energies and convictions borrowed from messianic belief and eschatology, how did contingent revolution further turn those energies towards secular ends? So this is a great question. It's the conceptual knot, you could say, at the core of Benjamin's essay. And the answer to it is not a simple one. <clears throat> First, I think it's important to clarify that Benjamin does not say that any convictions are really borrowed from 
messianic belief. He's, he's not saying that we remain, in a sense, religious believers. His argument is more philosophical. It concerns merely the transfer of concepts. What he says is that the theological concept of historical rupture or discontinuous time can be detached from the context of religious messianism, and it can then be deployed for the purposes of historical materialism. In a secular framework, that concept, that concept of historical rupture, provides us with the idea of a revolution as an event that is unprecedented and unexpected, one that's not prepared, one that's not simply the accumulation of imminent historical patterns uh, that came before. Now, so Benjamin is very interested in this transfer, this borrowing of a theological concept. But here's an important point. He doesn't think that this transfer leaves the concept wholly intact. He says that historical materialists inherit only a weak version of the messianic power that once coursed through uh, uh, messianism in the religious sense. In a skeptical mode, one has to ask, however, in what sense can a messianic concept retain its distinction as messianic if it's weak? Doesn't the messianic as such demand the power to shatter the historical continuum? And if it doesn't, how would it still be messianic? I don't have a good answer to that question, but I think it tells us something about the difficulties that Benjamin confronted when he tried to argue such an unusual point. In the 1939 work of art in the age of its technological reproducibility and the earlier uh, theological political fragment, how did Benjamin reconcile the sacrosanct aura of artwork with the bourgeois cult of fetishizing artwork? Given it is a contention that the technological reproduction of art eroded aura with a politics of revolutionary reproduction. So that's a great question. Benjamin, as we know, if we've read the essay, saw the aura as a trace of the magical or religious contexts in which art once enjoyed its special power or authority. He saw the modern bourgeois cult of the artwork of l'art pour l'art, of art for art's sake, as a sign that even in apparently secular contexts, the old power of the aura had not been completely vanquished. He resisted the idea, however, that art can only be art if the aura persists. On the contrary, he saw in modern techniques of reproducibility like in photography and film, where you can distribute the artwork again and again and, and make it again and again. Uh, he, he saw in those techniques of reproduction the promise that the aura might at last dissolve. Now, why did he think this was promising? Well, he believed that erratic art holds the spectator in a position of worshipful submission. Uh, one gazes upon the, or, the artwork and one thinks that that artwork holds a special kind of singular power over you and that your stance should be one of awe, 
of captivity and submission uh, to its authority. So he thought that the artwork, when it is set free from the aura and is reproduced a thousandfold, can circulate in society and can be experienced in a, in a different way, not by individuals, but by the collective, by the masses, a collective that no longer submits to the artwork, but instead experiences its own agency, its own sense of participation. Um, and, and Benjamin went so far as to say that the kind of concentration or focus that we normally bring to a work of art um, uh, might not be required if we experience an artwork under these conditions of reproducibility and in our collective life. He thought we can experience the work of art in a state not of concentration, but distraction. That's a that's a very provocative notion, one that, by the way, uh, Adorno found um, uh, deeply troubling. Now, to come back to Benjamin, Benjamin was especially interested in photography and film, forms of art that are especially available for reproduction, of course. But his argument also betrays the strong influence of Bertolt Brecht, who wished to replace the worshipful aesthetics of bourgeois or what he called culinary theater with the, dis, with the disenchanted, the alienating or confrontational aesthetics that he called epic theater. Benjamin's reflections on the revolutionary potentials of modern art in a Brechtian mode were composed during the moment when his friendship and his intellectual affinities with Brecht were at their most pronounced. And as I note in the book, such affinities were a source of of real consternation for Adorno, who wished to pull him in a completely different uh, direction. How did photographs sustain traces of aura in human expression? And why do you describe Benny Bean as a theorist of ambivalent secularization, I suppose due to his reliance on messianic time for interventions in historical materialism? So that's a great question. So Benjamin was ambivalent about the dissolution of the aura, and this is something we should always take care to note. Uh, it, it's been uh, explored, I think, most elegantly and, uh, and carefully in, in a brilliant essay by the late Miriam Hansen. Um, his ambivalence about the decay of the aura is uh, especially evident in an essay called The Little History of Photography, where he lavishes some loving attention on photographs, uh, portraits uh, from the late 19th century that show us luminous faces of individuals, uh, uh, faces that uh, Benjamin describes with um, palpable longing and melancholy. They are images of human beings who have most likely died. And he sees in these early photographs um, a trace of the aura of individuals, something that he seems to regard as uh, uh, quite lovely and appealing. Uh, so those theorists who fasten their attention only on the promise of, of non-oratic art 
are missing a certain ambivalence in Benjamin's theory. Yes, Benjamin embraced the decay of the aura and in his most Brechtian phase celebrated that decay because he believed that artwork when emancipated from the aura could be mobilized for a revolutionary aesthetics. Uh, but, but he was always ambivalent and that ambivalence uh, marks all of his thinking about the loss of religious categories. Despite all of his originality as a thinker, that originality came, I think, at the cost of a certain philosophical consistency. And this is really the core of my argument about Benjamin. Any doctrine of historical materialism that is true to its name has to be committed to the principle that the movements of history are due to imminent forces of material existence that work out their con- their contradictions over time through history and then transform history from within. Benjamin violated that principle. At the most critical junction in his philosophy of history, he appeals to a concept that is exotic to historical materialism, the messianic. And this is why I see him as adopting the posture of Clay's angel. He wishes to move forward in time, but he looks backward with regret and longing to the conceptual resources of theology, resources that historical materialism disallows. This is ambivalence in the strict sense. His posture looks two different directions at once. Now, notwithstanding this criticism, I think Benjamin is a a powerful and and, and fascinating uh, uh, and inspiring figure. But um, uh, like many theorists before me, I see this tension in his work as one that he could never truly resolve. So let's uh, shift gears here a little bit. What was the significance of Max Vorkheimer's early 1940s correspondence with uh, Theodore Teddy Adorno? as well as the semantic revision from metaphysical to non-scientific in the introduction to Martin Jay's 1973 dialectical imagination. Professor Jay was your doctoral advisor. If possible, please elaborate on Vorkheimer's uh, Schopenhauer pessimism in the context of the disenchanted dissolution of a Barian elective affinity. So there are a number of different issues here, and I I should um, uh, try to address them in turn. Yes, uh, Marty J was my uh, uh, doctor father, as they say, my doctoral advisor when I was at Berkeley. And uh, I admire him a great deal, and his his scholarship has been a real inspiration to me. Um, He wrote his, uh, uh, he published his first book in 1973, The Dialectical Imagination, and he wrote it. Uh, as a doctoral student in the Department of History at Harvard, where I teach now. So it's, it's, it's a, uh, there's a nice uh, uh, circle there. Uh, so when the young intellectual historian, Marty J., published that first book in 1973, The Dialectical Imagination, it appeared um, in the best possible way, you might say, with a brief but very admiring foreword by Max Horkheimer himself, the old uh, doyen of the first generation of the Frankfurt School, who was uh, at that point now uh, retired and living in Switzerland. And imagine, um, imagine the, the, that uh, 
powerful imprimatur on on one's dissertation when it comes out as a book. It's a it's an experience that any academic uh, uh, would would cherish. Now the foreword has some interesting features. It's quite short, <clears throat> but in my chapter on Horkheimer, I begin by looking closely at a particular verbal change that was introduced when Martin Jay sent the foreword back to Horkheimer for final corrections. Toward the end of his life, Horkheimer exhibited a pronounced interest in religion, especially in the Judaism of his childhood that he had long abandoned. It was a kind of return, you could say, after a long absence. During most of his early years as a philosopher, Horkheimer's sympathies were strongly materialist, and he would have openly denied any interest in theological categories. His rather grim statements about modern society sometimes lapse into thoroughgoing pessimism of the kind that he found appealing in the works of Schopenhauer, the philosopher who influenced him a great deal uh, in, in his early years. Okay, now... In the 1973 foreword to Martin Jay's book, Horkheimer comments on his new interest in religious concepts, especially the concept of the holy other, or the idea that earthly horror should not have the last word. Uh, He's commenting on this because Martin Jay elaborates somewhat on religious motifs and on the possibility that themes from Judaism, the idea of the unrepresentable or holy other God, have somehow worked their way into uh, the teachings of critical theory. And so Horkheimer himself, at the end of his life, was speaking about the holy other, a religious concept, um, uh, and he was saying that that notion of something other than the way the world is um, it does remain alive in critical theory. But in his foreword, he seeks to explain what he means a bit further. He confesses that it's admittedly, he says, a metaphysical wish. That was in the first draft. But in his final revision, and in the version we know from the published book, he changed that phrase, metaphysical wish, to non-scientific wish. Okay, now that may seem a relatively minor change, and only, um, and only uh, you might say, an academic would fasten so much attention and get so worked up about it, but I find it quite significant. It suggests that Horkheimer came to regret, you might say, the overt admission of his flight into metaphysical uh, speculation. And the term non-scientific, after all, doesn't tell us what the concept is. It only tells us what the concept is not. From there, I launch into an inquiry of the themes that preoccupied Horkheimer during the final phase of his career. Now, it's obvious to anyone who's familiar with his late work that he did come to see religion as one of the only, if not the only resources of critical leverage against a world that in all other respects seemed to lack any signs of hope, signs that things could ever be otherwise than they are. And that late return to religion is uh, what he's commenting on in his uh, foreword. 
But I think he was somewhat reluctant to see that new turning toward uh, theological categories stated so prominently in Martin Jay's book. And that may explain why he drew back into a rather sober and non-committal language that effaced his actual intentions. In Warkheimer's and Adorno's 1944 Dialectic of Enlightenment, how did the transition from myth to monotheism intervene in the loss of transformative critical capacities within human consciousness as human subjects attempted to master and dominate the environment? And how did these attempts result in an undifferentiated world of universal exchange? Okay, so this is a really fascinating theme in Dialectic of Enlightenment. And <clears throat> in my view, the, the, the complications in their assessment of monotheism have not received the attention they, they, they may deserve. So this is something I try to elaborate uh, at, at, at some length in the book. Horkheimer and Adorno uh, are not by any means uh, primarily concerned with religious categories uh, in Dialectic Enlightenment. It's a broad-ranging book. In fact, it's a rather disunified book. The subtitle of the book, after all, is Philosophical Fragments. Um, but there is a curious passage in the book in which they meditate on the significance of monotheism and its emergence uh, in human history. They understood that this emergence of monotheism had ambivalent consequences. So here let me explain that the question of what monotheism meant in human history is something that preoccupied a great many philosophers and sociologists in the first half of the 20th century, and their book reflects that debate. On the one hand, you might say they share with Karl Jaspers, the, the existential uh, philosopher, the, a, a view for which uh, Jaspers was well known. Jaspers argued that the emergence of monotheistic religion marked an emancipatory and welcome breakthrough from mythic imminence. Jaspers called this the axial revolution, and he thinks that that uh, that there was an epoch in human history uh, during which many different cultures underwent a kind of axial turn. Uh, uh, we find it in uh, uh, Buddhism. We find it in Greek philosophy. Uh, we find it in Judaism. And, and eventually we find it in Christianity. That axial turn for Jaspers, it marks the appearance in human thought and human history of a universalizing, world-transcendent vantage on reality, a new perspective on the world, one that permits us to see the world as potentially knowable by reason. Now, I think Horkheimer and Adorno, on the one hand, shared Jasper's assessment of the significance of the axial revolution and of the emergence of monotheism in human history. On the other hand, unlike Jasper's, they are dialectical thinkers. They knew that that very same phenomenon involves a dialectic and they are attentive 
to that dialectic or to the ambivalent consequences of monotheism. The divine subject, after all, transcends the world only to become a figure of mastery, a figure who subordinates the world completely to its purposes. Now, that's already a distorted or one-sided model of rational subjectivity, but it becomes the model for the human subject who similarly sees the world as material for domination. Okay, so the birth of monotheism becomes a highly ambivalent event in human history. It's a sign of freedom, yes, but also an early stage in the in what Horkheimer and Adorno call the dialectic of enlightenment. Uh, a, a an ironic event whereby the enlightenment, which promised freedom, ultimately distorts and betrays our freedom. <clears throat> Now, as for universal exchange, you asked about universal exchange. Adorno and Horkheimer trace the logic of capitalism all the way back in, into human prehistory when the human animal first descended from the trees and developed the capacity to form concepts. Concepts are categories, which is to say, logically, they involve subsuming particulars under universals. The differentiated stuff around us is not understood only in its particularity. Uh, it's grasped by means of concepts which are universals. You know, when I see a dog, I subsume the particular in front of me under the universal or categorical term dog. So in this sense, we could say that concept formation itself prepares the terrain for a principle of exchange. And Adorno and Horkheimer would say, for the capitalist principle, that all things are an undifferentiated or fungible mass, which can be understood using some universalizing standard of equivalence. So they basically say that uh, the capitalist principle of modern, uh, the capitalist principle of exchange was anticipated, or the ground for it was prepared by the human capacity for concept formation itself. Now, personally, I find that argument drastic and unpersuasive. Concept formation certainly doesn't determine the emergence of the exchange principle in modern capitalism. Uh, If we take them, uh, if we take their argument charitably, and I think we should, at most we could say that concept formation is a condition for the possibility of such a development. But even that strikes me as reading too many distinctive social features into what's, after all, a simple uh, fact of human reasoning. Wielding concepts is what we do as human beings, if we're intelligible creatures at all. Uh, And I think it's um, a a, a rather uh, extravagant thing to say that Um, a simple feature of human reasoning is somehow responsible for the emergence of modern capitalism. Modern capitalism has certain uh, rational characteristics, but has a great many, I would argue, great many more irrational characteristics. And I think it's very odd to to, um, make concept formation bear any blame uh, for all of the um, 
depredations and irrationalities and, um, and, and disorders that we associate with uh, capitalism, particularly as we know it today. So I think that's an unpersuasive moment in their argument. And ultimately, uh, I think it's a moment in their argument that betrays the bad influence of Nietzschean genealogical thinking um, in, 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 their, in their book. That's, of course, a longer uh, uh, topic that I'd be happy to discuss at some other point and in some other podcast. But you know, Nietzschean genealogy uh, has its uh, uh, great advantages. It also has certain disadvantages when it comes to um, uh, asking what kinds of normativities uh, survive our uh, genealogical spade work. And I think that certain kinds of uh, Nietzschean or genealogical arguments uh, uh, fail to ask that latter question. And I think Adorno and Horkheimer are often charged with having failed to answer the question of what normativities survive their apparently thoroughgoing genealogical skepticism about the origins of uh, modern rationality. This is a very complicated matter, but uh, I'll leave it there. Please explain Workheimer's ambivalent monotheism in regards to the role of Judaism in this subjective domination, as well as its role in facilitating attempts for Kantian transcendence, for better or for worse. Well, I think I probably answered most of that in, in a, a, a bit earlier when I was speaking to the ambivalent position of uh, monotheism and Judaism in Dialectic of Enlightenment. Um, I think Horkheimer and Adorno, when they wrote Dialectic Enlightenment, were aware of the Janus-faced nature of monotheism, that it points in two directions, both toward freedom and toward unfreedom, both toward uh, domination and toward uh, our, our uh, critical capacity to, um, to gain some um, um, leverage against uh, uh, domination. And that ambivalence is crucial to their argument. At, the, at its most subtle, they sustain a, a, a good or open-ended dialectic between those two verdicts without settling on a final verdict, either uh, extolling monotheism or uh, condemning it. And I think that that's the, uh, the strength of their book. It's a, it's a real strength, and it's not, not to be um, uh, missed. It's... Um, it is, uh, uh, um, by the way, uh, um, a, a dialectical subtlety that I think Horkheimer later abandoned, uh, but I'll come to that in a minute. Please also explain how and why Horkheimer, after 1963, contended that non-scientific thinking, quote, non-scientific thinking as exemplified by theology became the final refuge for critical resistance to subjective mastery of the environment. How do these formulations demonstrate a, what you referred to earlier in the podcast as a normative deficit a la Walter uh, Benjamin? So thank you for that. I, I, I should begin by explaining what I call the normative deficit of modernity, because this is really the, the heart of the book. It's a concept I've developed elsewhere to capture a certain disposition that's shared in common by a great many social theorists. So there's a view out there that modern society suffers from a scarcity of moral and political resources, 
or let's call them just normative resources. In other words, there's a view out there that the world we've created relies upon a mostly norm-free ideal of a smooth-running system. Instrumental rationality on this view basically governs modern life, and we have little or nothing on hand that can provide us with any sense of normative direction, some sense of a moral and political compass. The system runs on its own. Okay. Well, the idea of a normative deficit in modern society originates most of all with Max Weber, uh, and I've uh, written about that else, elsewhere uh, most recently in, a, in an article, um, in a chapter uh, for a book that came out with uh, Princeton uh, uh, um, on the idea of a normative deficit after Max Weber. Weber's not singularly responsible for the idea. There, there are, of course, antecedents. And you could argue that it's an idea that goes back to the origins of religion itself, when uh, religious prophets condemned the world around them, saying that that world was a fallen world that lacked moral compass because it didn't hearken to you know, the voice in the whirlwind. It didn't hearken to uh, a, a, a divine directives. Now, the idea of a normative deficit in modernity serves as one component, I would argue, in a broader argument that we often find in 20th century social theory. And the argument goes like this. It has uh, two components. First, modern society suffers from a lack of any moral or political resources. And second, the sole resource that remains available to us is religion. And taken together, you put those two claims together and you get what I call the twin theses of political theology. The modern world without religion lacks any moral and political compass, lacks any normativity. And the only remedy for that absence is religion. Those are the twin theses of political theology. And the argument for political theology is most familiar to us, after all, from the thought of Carl Schmitt. But I suggested that variants of political theology can also be detected, for instance, in the work of Walter Benjamin, as I just explained. And in a rather more bold and uh, uh, maybe ill-considered argument, I once went so far as to suggest that even Jürgen Habermas, an exemplar of fidelity to the argument, who's an uh, unremitting, uh, admirable uh, opponent of Schmidt, has not remained wholly immune to the claims of political theology. I, I now feel that that suggestion was uh, rather overstated, but, but I, I did make that claim at one point. In any event, to come back to your question, it's fairly clear to me that Horkheimer fell into the trap of a kind of political theology toward the end of his life because he came to despair of any this-worldly social transformations that might redress the pathologies of a modern administered world. And he came to feel that religion alone beckoned as the singular remedy. Finally, we've reached Adorno and his ruthless movement into the profane, by which, quote, nothing of theological content will persist without being transformed. Every content will have to put itself to the test of migrating into the realm of the secular, the profane. First, please compare and contrast the persistence of mindful negativity and dominant social reality, 
which I take to be one of the ostensible aims of Adorno's 1966 negative dialectics, with the Galian dialectics of identity and non-identity between subject and object, object for an absolute idea. Okay, thank you. Thank you for this. I should say that the chapter on Adorno is surely the more most complicated one in the book, um, perhaps because I've written a great deal more about Adorno elsewhere, and I find his philosophical work endlessly fascinating for all of its gestures of unresolved uh, dialectic. And in fact, I'm writing another book about uh, just about Adorno right now. So um, um, it's hard for me to shut up once I start talking about Adorno, and you'll probably have to shut me up as we go. Um, but but it's the con- it's the concluding chapter of the three main chapters of the book. The first is on Benjamin, the second on Horkheimer, the third is on Adorno, and where I find both Benjamin and Horkheimer ultimately um, uh, lost themselves in a certain aporia or cul-de-sac of of of, of ambivalence between uh, uh, secular and religious categories. Um, I find Adorno's attempt at a solution most persuasive, though, of course, I, I'm, I'm not trying to argue that it's, it's without difficulties. So my argument in the chapter begins by laying out the more relevant distinctions between the dialectic as Hegel understood it and the negative dialectic as conceived by, by Adorno. Um, this is, of course, an endlessly complicated matter, but let me just state the matter as brutally and briefly as I can. Briefly, the Hegelian dialectic is intended as a logical and dynamic form of thought that sees all of human reality as moving from primitive unity through division and contraction, uh, and sorry, uh, from primitive unity through division and contradiction to uh, a differentiated and rational whole. So the dialectic has three moments, and these are the three moments of really logic itself. Uh, Logic itself demands that we move from primitive unity through analysis and then to a final moment that captures both unity and division. Hegel believed that that movement culminates in a rational condition that he called absolute knowing. That's the final moment of the dialectic, embracing both unity and division. Hegel spoke of this as the final satisfactions of spirit, a stage where both identity and non-identity would be preserved, but reconciled within a higher identity. So in Hegelian jargon, he called this the identity of identity and non-identity. Lovely Hegelian uh, language there. Now, Adorno sees the Hegelian drive toward final reconciliation as a paradigm of ideology. The suffering and division of the world can be justified by Hegel. This is Adorno's argument. Only because Hegel believes there's a final moment of closure a vantage from which the various stages of difficulty and division are seen as rational moments in a process that has now reached its consummation. So that's Adorno's assessment of Hegel. So let me explain something about our contemporary philosophical climate here. These days we live in a philosophical culture that's skeptical about Hegel's grand statements of metaphysical closure. 
And for many of the more recent expositors of Hegel's philosophy, Hegel's final gesture of consummation is now seen as an embarrassment. And they've, <clears throat> excuse me, they struggled to find a way to say that Hegel didn't really endorse anything like a culmination in the history of spirit, that his language of, of, of Versunung or, or reconciliation, his, his language of Vollendung or consummation uh, shouldn't really be taken as implying some kind of metaphysical uh, closure in the history of spirit. And so they've, they've come up with what I would call deflationary or apologetic readings. Um, uh, ones that see uh, Hegel as arguing not for closure, but for a, a, a stage at which we recognize that the ongoing practice of giving and taking reasons is what we really should aim for. Uh, but that remains a kind of pragmatic and open-ended uh, uh, a stage in history, not a culmination and closure. I don't find that deflationary school of neo-Hegelian interpretation all that convincing. Um, Jürgen Habermas called it, calls it a decapitated Hegel. <laughs> um, and at the very least, I think that this neo-Hegelian school should admit that it wasn't at least what Hegel himself intended, even if we ourselves find the deflationary reading more appealing. Now, Adorno saw clearly that Hegel's dialectic of closure serves as an apologetic for human suffering. And this is... Um, this is, by the way, a theme that comes through in Benjamin's theses as well. Benjamin does not accept that there's any perspective on human history which would allow us to accept the suffering of those who came before. Adorno takes that theme up with a vengeance. He insists that uh, the, the better thought in Hegel, the, the better idea that Hegel had was Hegel's emphasis on negativity. And Adorno himself wishes to set free the negative, to make it the touchstone for a truly critical practice that doesn't lead to reconciliation, doesn't end in closure. Adorno's idea of a negative dialectic is the idea of that kind of critical practice. Now, an intriguing theme in his argument is that theology may have some important role to play in that kind of critical practice, in the practice of a negative dialectic. Why? Well, because theology preserves the concept of something that always resists reconciliation within a rational or intelligible whole. Theology preserves the concept, you might say, of something that resists conceptualization. This is why Adorno insists that theological concepts don't wholly disappear. For the sake of critique, or for the sake of critique alone, we need to hold on to them in some strange and compromised fashion, even while we trace what Adorno calls their migration into the profane. Now, in Adorno's bonding and separation of the sacred and the profane in meta metaphysical experience, he referred to human theological ca quote, capacity to sustain a truly critical perspective on social reality. 
within the context of self-critical negation of this perspective. So I guess my question is, how is this theological capacity an actual gesture of secularization, allowing humans to resist notions of rational reflection derived from a seemingly anti-theological social whole? If possible, in your response, please compare these ideas to uh, Jerusalem Sholem's dialectical conception of history from myth to enlightenment, and explain how this gesture overcame Benjamin's and Wertheimer's normative deficit. So th- this is a great question. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I, I, let me just begin by explaining the theological capacity is not a gesture of secularization. The theological concept must undergo a gesture of secularization. Um, that, that's, but l- let me let me l- uh, let me try to answer the, the question. Um, well, for the sake of time and clarity, I think we should probably avoid venturing too deeply into the thicket of Sholem's thoughts on the Jewish mystical tradition. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I know a bit about it, but um, I've been by no means an expert on, on Jewish mysticism. And I, I myself uh, um, might begin to sound uh, rather confused if I uh, try to start explaining all of the, all, all of the uh, metaphysical details of the Kabbalah. So suffice it to say that Sholem drew some inspiration from Sholem, or maybe drew some instruction from Sholem, who was a, you know, an enormously uh, gifted scholar and whose, whose understanding of, of the Jewish mystical tradition really reshaped the history of religion in the 20th century. Adorno draws upon Sholem a little bit in the concluding pages to Negative Dialectics. My own claim is that Adorno develops his thinking with reference to the claim that theological ideas can only persist if they undergo a ruthless, quote, migration into the secular, the profane. And the arguments of negative dialectics, Adorno's 1966 book, really exemplify that idea. Adorno believes that the practice of criticism demands that we see the fissures, the moments of negativity in our current social reality. But, Adorno says, that kind of criticism is only possible if we somehow wrench our minds free from the ideological structures that otherwise govern our thinking and our lives. So then the question becomes, how could that kind of critical freedom be possible at all? Now, let me explain. This is a deep problem in Adorno's work. And there have been extraordinarily interesting debates among philosophers in the tradition of critical theory as to whether Adorno succeeded in explaining what allowed for his own critical practice. Why is this an issue? Well, it's an issue because Adorno, at his most skeptical, makes it sound as if critical reflection itself has become impossible and that the ideological structures of the modern world have become so totalizing that they inhibit any possible criticism, let alone human freedom. Jürgen Habermas, for example, uh, felt that Adorno couldn't explain his own critical practice given his totalizing condemnations of modern reason and that therefore Adorno foundered in self-contradiction. Uh, And and many other critics have taken up that kind of uh, charge against Adorno. 
most recently, the philosopher uh, Fabian Freienhagen uh, has argued that Adorno was able to sustain knowledge of what's wrong with the world, even though he didn't have uh, a clear view of what it would be like for something to be uh, good. Um, I highly recommend Freienhagen's book. It's one of the most sophisticated contributions to uh, Adorno's thinking and to critical theory in general, even though I have some quarrels with uh, Freienhagen's argument. Um, and um, the book I'm writing right now is, in, in, in many respects, my attempt to, to answer this problem in a different way, um, uh, even while drawing instruction from, from Freienhagen. Adorno's answer to this challenge, in my opinion, rests on his curious suggestion that criticism demands the thought of something that refuses reconciliation. If we're going to criticize the world, we need to gain some uh, point of critical leverage against it. That means seeing its imperfections, seeing the, the, the fissures, seeing the gaps in a world that wants to present itself to us as a seamless and justified whole. So criticism demands uh, 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 refusing the ideology of reconciliation, refusing the world's claim that it is wholly intelligible, that it is a seamless whole. But the only thing that could uh, furnish us with that kind of critical vision, Adorno claims, is a metaphysical concept as preserved in religious tradition. But here's uh, Adorno's twist. He's not a theologian. He's not a religious thinker. He insists that metaphysics cannot remain what it once was. Instead, he says, metaphysics must, and he uses this phrase, migrate into micrology. What does that mean? It means that the theologically derived concept of the negative descends from its extra-mundane referent, from its metaphysical realm outside the world, and it takes up a new residence within social reality, within our own social space. It takes up that new position and becomes the negative or the moment of fracture inside our own everyday experience. Now, Adorno sometimes thought that there was something promising, something even positive about those kinds of experiences that don't fit with the rest of our lives. And so in the end of Negative Dialectics, he refers to a promising um, uh, even redemptive uh, uh, experiences. He calls them metaphysical experiences. And he sees those as holding out a similar kind of promise. They're experiences of a kind of satisfaction that the world otherwise denies. They don't fit. But, and this is Adorno's strong claim, that not fitting is the birthplace of all criticism. On that note, how wide do you advance the argument that Adorno's negative dialectics can function as negative theology, premised on the notion that the affirmation of religion would dishonor its meaning, while only the negation of religion can fulfill its truth? If possible, 
in your response, please elaborate on your comparison between Adorno, who conceived of, quote, capitalist ideology as an error that is anchored in collective consciousness and constitutes features of the social order, and the Jewish medieval philosopher Maimonides' negation of privations and anthropomorphic descriptions of God. Okay, so thank you for that, that question. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. We should be very careful with our language here. Adorno's negative dialectics doesn't really function as negative theology. Um, my claim is that Adorno secularizes a crucial gesture in negative theology, and this secularized gesture serves as the key to his negative dialectic. In the book, I entertain what I admit is a rather fanciful and perhaps far-fetched comparison between Adorno and Maimonides. I'm following excellent scholars here, however, um, for example, James Gordon Finlayson, who's explored the comparison between Adorno and Pseudo-Dionysus, another early thinker in the tradition of negative theology. Since I know rather more about Maimonides and his work, I find the comparison rather intriguing, though there are some points at which the comparison stops. The crucial idea here is that Maimonides wished to approach a higher knowledge of the divine uh, by the via negativa, the root of the negative, which is to say not by affirming knowledge of the truth of God, but by denying uh, the false. Maimonides believed that by denying the predicates we might wish to attach to God, we free ourselves from illusion and gain a better understanding of the divine, an understanding of the divine as truly surpassing all predication. Now, Adorno also practices what you might call a via negativa in the negative uh, dialectic. And he also does so with an emancipatory intent, that is the intent of freeing ourselves from illusion or in his language from ideology. The difference is that Adorno refuses to stop once he's arrived at a proper understanding of the divine, right? Like, like Maimonides. He, Adorno isn't a religious thinker. The critical practice of negation is pursued onward, right into the heart of theology, to the point that it evacuates even the divine object of uh, no, even the divine object of knowledge of any metaphysical reality. And in that respect, we might say that Adorno is the more consistent thinker. He's more faithful to the via negativa, but he's so faithful to it that it eventually uh, dissolves the divine object it was originally designed to serve. Negative dialectics, in other words, inherits the critical gesture of a negative theology, but it refuses to accept there, that there is a final object that remains immune to our criticism. And that's, uh, that's, that's uh, what I see as the uh, point of commonality between Adorno and Maimonides. But that's also why I say there's a point where uh, the resemblance ends. To conclude this podcast, can you connect the ideas discussed today with Jürgen Habermas's somewhat recent foray into religious sources of dialectical secularization, as well as the role of the migrant in Adorno's rejoinder 
to Heideggerian ideas and on dwelling and rule over soil and plates as limits to being in the world, despite the latter's admission of a concept of not at homeness. In the final analysis, how and why did secularism play such a crucial role in the ideas and principles of the Frankfurt School? Okay, well, thank you for that final question. I should explain that much of the book is in uh, close dialogue with Jürgen Habermas, whose recent thoughts on the dialectical bond between religion and reason helped to inspire some of my own reflections, despite some persistent small knots of disagreement between us. Um, Concerns about religion are not really recent with Habermas. An interest in the persistence and transformation of religious experience can be found all the way back in his major work from some 40 years ago, The Theory of Communicative Action, a massive two-volume work, one in which he offered an important theoretical contribution to the model of secularization as the transformation of our social bond. He called this the linguistification of the sacred. He thought that the religious bond, religio, by the way, means binding. Uh, He thought that the religious bond is very powerful in traditional communities. But one of the interesting things that we see in the history of religion is that uh, religious communities uh, begin to make sacred experience available for discursive reflection. The rise of textuality in religion is an important part of the history of religion. And that textuality gives rise to, uh, you know, first the Bible, but then also uh, the Talmud with its speculations on, on, on Jewish law and medieval Christian theology, all highly uh, discursive ways of coping with the sacred. And uh, Habermas refers to this as the linguistic linguistification of the sacred. And one of the interesting things it does, by making the sacred available for discursive reflection, it also opens up sacred experience to critical scrutiny and makes it vulnerable to rational criticism to the point that ultimately it can even dissolve. So the linguistification of the sacred is a preparatory step that can lead to greater secularization of our social experience. Anyways, that's a long time ago in the theory of communicative action, which uh, uh, remains uh, one of the most powerful works of social theory in the 20th century. But of course, Habermas has traveled a long way since then. He opened up a new path of thinking about secularization in the first volume of his essays uh, uh, that had the title Post-Metaphysical Thinking. And since then, over the last 20 years or so, he's been elaborating on the question of how religion might persist and how the normative resources of religious traditions can be made available for secular society without compromising the neutrality of the modern secular state. On the concluding page of his very recent book, published just a year ago, under the title, This Too, A History of Philosophy, Habermas returns to that wonderful phrase by Adorno, the one that I also find so startling, that theological concepts can only persist if they undergo a migration into the secular, the profane. In the conclusion of my own book, I offer some thoughts as to how that 
image of the migration of religious concepts might bear on the current migration crisis. An experience of it's been particularly pronounced uh, over the past 10 years or so, and has only, in height, has only heightened our awareness of cultural and religious heterogeneity in Europe and in North America. Now, that pluralism, that heterogeneity, is a fact of modern society. And it's resisted only by reactionary voices who can't accept, who refuse to accept the diversity of multicultural society. Adorno once wrote that authentic dwelling is now impossible. This, I argue in the book, is an elegant rejoinder to Heidegger, who rhapsodized in rather nostalgic tones about authenticity and dwelling. And he did so some years after he'd been fulminating in a seminar from the early 1930s about so-called Semitic nomads who have no roots and lay waste to all the civilizations they invade. Now, I have little more to say here about Heidegger. He was, I think, an important philosopher, uh, um, uh, but he's hardly immune to uh, philosophical criticism. Let me come to the final point. Today, it should be obvious that for peoples of such different life experiences to live together in one polity, there must be some framework that allows for what Adorno once called difference without domination. Now, what we call that framework um, is a matter of debate. Um, the structures of the modern secular state emerged precisely as a response to this challenge, chiefly in the 17th and 18th century, as a way to adjudicate between the rival claims of Protestants and Catholics, and eventually uh, through uh, uh, movements for emancipation at the end of the 18th century and on into the 19th, uh, uh, Jews were admitted as fellow citizens as well. And uh, um, Secular, secular principles, principles of secular statehood um, took shape gradually and were modified and contested over time precisely to allow for what Adorno called difference without domination, to allow for those with dramatically different life experiences and faith commitments to live together without submitting any one religious group uh, uh, to subordination and without permitting any other religious group to rise to a level of, of domination where they could erect something like a new theocracy. Now, um, more recently, secularist principles uh, or secularist frameworks for the state uh, have been challenged uh, with um, enormously interesting uh, uh, critical work, particularly done by anthropologists. Clearly, the structures of the secular state should not be used in a selective fashion. The charge of selectivity in particular has prompted some scholars to say that secularism as such is coercive or that it's little more than a crypto-Christian concept that only has paradoxical effects when it's uh, applied to adherence of other faiths. I, I think that conclusion is unwarranted. And if there is some alternative to the secular framework for religiously diverse citizens to live together, 
I think it's the responsibility of the critics of secularism to offer that alternative and to explain how it might work. You know, skeptical genealogies of the secular are really interesting and they illuminate a great many of the paradoxes. But the normative question of what we should do and how we should live together also needs to be answered. And indulging in um, skeptical dismantling without offering an alternative strikes me as perhaps a bit irresponsible given how high the stakes are for all of us today. In the United States, we know that there are many people who would prefer that that uh, the states uh, once again um, endorse uh, uh, theocratic uh, principles where Christianity would dominate uh, over other religions, if not exclude them entirely. Uh, so, uh, so I think we need to hold on to some idea of what that framework could be. We can call it secularism. We might call it something else. And the terms are interesting. But what's more important is um, the normative principles and how they might permit us to live together. Meanwhile, we should hope that principles applied in fairness across all the diverse members of a modern state will suffice for us to live in harmony. And these principles have to apply to all peoples, regardless of religious identity or ethno-national origin. Uh, The migration crisis has made that uh, painfully obvious to all of us today. And it's why the theme of the migrant, the theme of a migration into the profane has such resonance for me and why I wish to speak about it in the conclusion of my book. So on a final note, however, I'll add here, I do feel it's important to recognize the difference within polities, ethno-national difference and religious difference within polities places a unique demand on all of us. All of us, whatever our identity, whatever our uh, religious identity or our lack of religious identity, all of us have the responsibility to adopt a more relativized and qualified and fallibilistic understanding of our own identity. Human beings are multiple, even in their own internal identifications. We're multiple creatures. Uh, We contain multiplicity even within us. And recognizing this fact requires a certain kind of disenchantment of our own identity and our own identitarian attachments. And I admit that kind of demand is by no means a simple demand to live up to. Uh, But without that chastening of identity, without relativizing our sense of attachment, it's hard for me to see how we're going to survive. This can uh, potentially uh, function as a follow-up question. What's going on with you next? You mentioned a uh, a a book that's going to be somewhat focused on uh, Adorno. Another book. Um, can you disclose what you're uh, doing next? Yeah, yeah, it's no secret. So, <clears throat> in 2019, uh, we were commemorating the uh, 50th anniversary of uh, Adorno's death in 1969. Um, And I had the great honor, an honor I really did not deserve, 
of delivering the um, Adorno Vorlesungen, uh, the Adorno Lectures, uh, which is a distinguished lecture series <clears throat> sponsored by the Institute for Social Research in Frankfurt in partnership uh, with the uh, Zurkamp Verlag, the um, publisher uh, Zurkamp, which has published um, works of critical theory ever since uh, uh, Peter Zurkamp founded it in the 1950s. It's been the major publisher for works by Adorno up to today when it's published the major works by people like uh, Axel Honneth and, and, and uh, Jürgen Habermas himself and others. So I gave the Adorno Vorlesungen in, in, in uh, 2019, and uh, uh, those lectures addressed the question of normativity in Adorno's work, of, of what uh, normative resources he has in his philosophy. Um, those were three lectures, and I'm currently in the process of transforming and expanding the lectures into a book, which will uh, first appear in German with Zurkamp Verlag. Um, and uh, I must say, uh, uh, working on this book is a delight. I, I, I find this uh, question in Adorno endlessly fascinating. And it does reprise some of the questions um, that I've addressed in Migrants and the Profane, because it once again brings up the question of the place of theology in Adorno's work and um, and um, and uh, the, the relationship between uh, problems of theology and normativity in negative dialectics. So that's what I'm working on right now. Thank you for being on the podcast today, Professor Gordon. We hope you remember uh, the New Books Network for that uh, particular, uh, for your perspective research. Well, thank you so much. It was a delight talking with you. Thank you for such uh, discerning questions. And yeah, I'd certainly be happy to come back. God willing, if I ever finish that next book, I'd be happy to chat about it with you. Thanks so much. <laughs> so uh, the the book is Migrants in the Profane, Critical Theory and the Question of Secularization, published by Yale University Press. Uh, on behalf of Professor Gordon, this has been a podcast on, on the uh, New Books and Critical Theory channel, a uh, podcast channel on the New Books Network. This is Ryan Tripp, your host. Please tune in next time.